Okay, I am really thankful to have Matt bring God's word to us this morning. Uh, Matt's been part of us for about a year and a half or so in the last membership class. And Matt's just become a, just a dear friend. He loves Jesus. He loves the word. He loves the mission, the vision of the church. He loves you. And I'm really grateful to have him come and, and bring God's word to us. So let's welcome Matt Cabot. Come on, man. Hello? Can you hear me? The, the, the prospect of me with a mic scared my wife. She says that I, I talk loud enough, and I, I've taught at a university for 10 years, and I, I never had to use a mic, so now, thank you, Donald, you can adjust the uh, levels as needed. Uh, I want to welcome you here to Mercy Hill, especially the, the, my friends and family that are here uh, to hear me preach. The whole Cabot crowd is this side, and I think we've doubled the size of our congregation. Just, just raise your hand. If I introduce all of you, it'll add like 15 minutes. Um, and a special shout out to, to Ryan, because Ryan came last week to hear me preach, and I wasn't preaching. Um, so this is, this is two weeks in a row, Ryan. You know, I know I haven't talked to uh, Pastor Steve or the elders about this, but if you come a third week in a row, I'm pretty sure we can get you in for free. <laughs> I, uh, I lecture every day to, to students, but the stuff I tell my students uh, has very little uh, eternal consequence. Uh, but what I'm going to talk about this morning has uh, eternal implications, and it's really important stuff. So let me do something that I never get a chance to do at San Jose State, and that's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to bring your word, Lord. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet me and meet us in this message. And that your name would be lifted up and glorified and that we would come away from here just loving you more and loving your word. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. So a few years ago, uh, there was a major international story of a French charity called Zoe's Ark that flew to Sudan with the idea it was going to rescue children left orphaned by the war in Darfur. And after the charity got there, uh, they gathered around 100 kids, boarded them on a plane, and the plane was ready to take off. And right before it took off, the local authorities stopped it. Because apparently what happened is that contrary to the claims of the charity, these 100 kids were not orphans at all but in fact had parents and had been kidnapped in what looked like an illegal money-for-adoption scheme. Kids ranged in age from 1 to 10, and authorities very quickly were able to determine that they were all from the, the, the Chad-Sudan border region. But getting the kids back with their parents proved to be very difficult. Social workers went door-to-door, sometimes with pictures saying, Is this your child? And because of the war there and because the kids were part of a, uh, of a criminal case, uh, it took a long time to get them back to their parents. After about six months of being stranded in an orphanage, the kids were reunited with their parents at a post office in Adra, which is about a six-hour bus trip from their homes in Chad. As CNN reported the moment, it was a scene of jubilation as family after family uh, streamed out of the post office, bringing their, their children home. I, I can only imagine how terrifying that was for the kids 
and their parents. And I know that if I ever lost my kids, that I would do everything in my power to get them back. I would stop at nothing, and I uh, would become obsessed at finding them. In fact, I would be out of my mind because that which I loved most, my precious children, were lost. This morning, I want to talk to you about the parable of the lost sheep, which can be found in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's at the beginning of what I call the lost and found chapter because after the parable of the lost sheep, there's the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost uh, son, also known as the prodigal son. All three of these parables paint a picture of a God who has, in the words of Francis Chan, a crazy love for us. They show us that our Father in Heaven is relentless in his pursuit of those who are lost. My prayer this morning is that we would leave here with a profound sense of gratitude for God's mercy and grace, and that we as individuals in a church would become passionate about seeing our lost co-workers, friends, neighbors, and even total strangers become saved. So let's go to the text. Chapter 15 of Luke, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, it looks like you guys already got it out there, but in the Bibles we passed out, it's on page 874. Okay, let's read the, the text. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. First thing we notice in this passage is that there were tax collectors and sinners who were drawing near to hear Jesus teach. And this upset the religious leaders who were there uh, because the Pharisees had drawn some very clear boundaries of who was holy and who was not. And clearly, tax collectors and sinners uh, were not. Tax collectors collected tolls, tariffs, and customs on behalf of the Roman government. They were notoriously dishonest and therefore were despised. The term sinners here seems to reflect a commonly understood meaning of the word that included people, uh, both people guilty of publicly known sin and then those who did not keep the strict purity requirements of the Pharisees. In the eyes of the Pharisees and scribes, the fact that these sort of people were attracted to Jesus reflected poorly on him. In fact, it was one more mark against him. So the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus doesn't just tolerate the sinners and tax collectors. He welcomes them and he eats with them. Eating with his people 
um, brought them into what the ESV Study Bible calls, and I love this, extended interpersonal association. Extended interpersonal association. So what that means is, this is not your drive-by, toss the burrito out the window to the homeless guy move. Right? This is table fellowship. It's more than just eating a meal together because it brings a sense of welcome and recognition. The problem is, the Pharisees thought that sinners and tax collectors were unclean, and according to rabbinic teaching, Jews who associated with unclean people would themselves become unclean. So here we have the holy and the unholy side by side in this awkward assembly, all united to hear Jesus teach. Jesus was different, right? And that excited the religious outcasts who never were invited into that religious conversation. But it worried the religious elite who didn't necessarily want to bring more people into that conversation, especially those who were notorious sinners. It turns out, though, it would be the notorious sinners who would be most receptive to Jesus' message. But Jesus knew this would happen. In fact, he told the Pharisees so at a dinner party that takes place, if you read this in chapter 14, where Jesus is at a dinner party of a ruler of the Pharisees, a dinner apparently, according to verse 1 of 14, where he is being carefully watched. And at one point in the dinner, Jesus turns to the ruler of the, of the house and tells him the parable of the great banquet. And in that parable, uh, the original invited guests are replaced by outcasts inside the city and strangers outside the city. The strangers, this is good news for us because those are the Gentiles who are being welcomed into uh, the kingdom. So Jesus is talking about the Messianic banquet and how the guest list has changed. The insiders are out. The outsiders are in, and if the guests had any clue about what Jesus was talking about, it probably was more than a little bit disturbing to them. So here in the crowd, listening to Jesus tell the parable of the lost sheep, were sinners and tax collectors, the outsiders, and the Pharisees and the scribes, the insiders. And it would be the outsiders who would understand the parable because they would most readily identify themselves with the lost sheep. The insiders would never assume that Jesus was talking to them. They probably would be puzzled by the parable. Sinners, tax collectors, scribes, Pharisees, all too uncomfortably close, and the Pharisees grumbled. So, it says in verse 3, Jesus told them, the Pharisees and the scribes in particular, This parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? The Pharisees were probably looking at each other thinking, no one in his right mind who's in the sheep business, if he's got a hundred sheep and one of them escapes, Is he going to leave the hundred sheep in the open country to the wolves and to the mountain lions and go chasing after one sheep? You cut your losses. You forget about the one sheep and you go on. That makes sense 
of course, from a business perspective, but in God's economy, it does not. And here's why. The one lost sheep is the whole human race as we really are. And the 99 found sheep who never get lost is the whole human race as we think we are. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And in doing so, we have become lost. Here's the problem. The universal human condition. We cannot find our way back on our own. We are sheep, and we need a shepherd. One of my daughter's favorite phrases, as soon as she could speak, was, all by myself. <laughs> I think those might have been her first three words. I had to do the math there for a minute. And in a, in a, in a child, that's a pretty good impulse, right? We want to, as parents, eventually see our kids move from dependence to independence. But is, is that what God the Father wants for us, His children? Does He want us to be independent? I've actually heard some Christian commentators who say that the more mature you become in your faith, the less dependent you'll become on, on God. I mean, can you, can you imagine God saying, well, you're an adult now, time to start making your own decisions. It's absurd. The more we become mature in our faith, the more we realize that we need Him for everything. We don't need to start looking to move out of the Father's house to find our own place. Right? On the contrary, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're God's children, but we're also God's sheep. You know, Jesus could have used some other animals to describe us. He could have said, we are his camels, right? But camels apparently have an amazing ability to find water. They can scent it from afar, and they can actually survive a long time in the wilderness by themselves. Sheep can't find water. Jesus could have said, we are his vultures, which is plain weird, but uh, vultures too have the ability to spy their prey from an enormous distance off. Sheep can't find food. Dogs can find their way home. Horses can make their way back to the stable. Chickens, I've now learned, because we have chickens, can find the coop. But sheep will wander on and on endlessly. Sheep need a shepherd. They need a shepherd who will make them lie down in green pastures and lead them beside quiet waters. Otherwise, they'll die. Psalm 103 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We need a shepherd, but not just any shepherd, because it turns out that there are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. Uh, Tim Challies, who is a Christian blogger, posted an article on his website, a uh, true story about what can happen to sheep 
when the shepherds are not paying attention. So let me read the lead paragraph to you. Dateline, Dateline Istanbul. Hundreds of sheep followed their leader off a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 15 meters, that's nearly 50 feet, to their deaths in a ravine in Van Province. But get this. But broke the fall of another 1,100 sheep who survived. Shepherds from the Ikizler village neglected the flock while eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. Just picturing this giant wool trampoline, you know. Thank goodness they broke the fall, at least in the bottom. But here's the point of this, brothers and sisters. Sheep don't commit suicide, right? They don't leap to their deaths because of despair in their life. They're just really stupid. I mean, you've got dumb, dumber, and then sheep. Or this, this thing. But, but more than that, they are committed to a leader. And they will follow that lead sheep wherever it goes. In this particular case, the lead sheep goes off the cliff. Then the rest of the flock, hundreds and then thousands, uh, go after him. Sheep don't know any better, but shepherds do. And God expects his shepherds to take care of his sheep. When they don't, it makes him angry. In fact, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 34 and read God's prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 34, uh, it's verse, I mean, on page 722 in the Bibles that we've passed out. What, you don't read Ezekiel every day? You can't find this? I've got to tell you, a little sidebar while you're looking it up. Um, see, Millette thinks I'm really good at my, my Bible knowledge. turns out that my Bible is the same one you guys use here. So when you give the page number, I'm going, yeah, I got it right here. <laughs> Found that quickly. All right, so Ezekiel 34, chapter 34, let's read verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves and eating breakfast while their sheep fall off cliffs. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search for them. Shepherds of Israel had neglected and even abused God's sheep, God's people. They didn't strengthen the weak or bind up the injured, and because they weren't paying attention or because they didn't care, God's sheep were scattered. And now they're lost. 
So what does God do? We read in verse 15, he fires the shepherds. You're done, finished. God takes on the job himself. Reading in verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Fast forward to Luke chapter 15. Jesus standing before the Pharisees and scribes, the shepherds of Israel, and he asks them, Which one of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? I imagine Jesus pausing here and scanning the faces of the Pharisees in the crowd, perhaps even some that were at that dinner with him a few days ago, as if to say, Nathaniel, will you go after the lost sheep? Mordecai, how about you? Samuel, will you go after the lost sheep? Silence. The point is, these shepherds are not going to seek the lost. But Jesus is. He says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission then, and it's his mission today. As Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, said, The wandering of a soul causes Jesus deep sorrow. He cannot bear the thought of its perishing. And so Jesus, as the good shepherd, leaves the 99 and searches for his lost sheep. And he doesn't stop, according to verse 4 of chapter 14, until he finds it. He will be successful in finding his lost sheep. Quoting Spurgeon again, The purpose that he, Jesus, meant to achieve by his passion and death, he shall achieve. For he is the eternal, the infinite, the omnipotent. And who shall stay his hand or baffle his design? He will not have it. And yet the Bible tells us that not everyone will be saved. So who then will be saved? Which sheep will be rescued? The answer, the ones that are his own. Jesus explains in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The lost sheep who will be saved are the ones who, when they hear their master's voice, turn and follow him. And when they do, the good shepherd lifts the sheep onto his shoulders and carries them home. The good shepherd Jesus does all the work. We rest in his arms as he carries us safely back to the fold. So, do we play a role in our rescue? The answer is in verse 7 of chapter 14. It says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. What must we do to be saved? We need to repent. 
which means to turn. So when we hear, uh, so when the good shepherd goes to rescue his lost sheep, he calls to them, and his sheep will hear his voice and turn toward their shepherd. In that moment, when someone hears the voice of Jesus and turns and trusts and follows him, he's born again. He has crossed over from darkness into light, from death into life, and he's a new creature. And when that happens, according to verse 6, heaven rejoices and throws a party. Verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Same thing happens for the parables that come after that lost coin and lost son. In the parable of the lost coin, we read, and this is a short one, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Likewise, the father who loses the son and the son returns. In verse 23, we read, And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. It's a party in heaven every time a sinner repents and is saved. It's a big deal. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God does not wish that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when a lost sheep is rescued and brought home, there is a celebration. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. The one lost sheep stands for us all prior to being saved. When Jesus references in verse 7, the 99 persons who need no repentance, it has to be read ironically. In other words, in light of the, the emphasis in all the Gospels for the universal need for repentance, Jesus must mean here those who think that they are righteous and have no need of repentance. After sin entered the world through the fall, we were all born spiritually dead. And contrary to popular opinion, no one in that condition is looking for God. In Romans 3.11, the Apostle Paul says, No one seeks for God, all have turned aside. No one's seeking God, but the good news is, God is seeking us. Without a shepherd to rescue us, we would never be found. We would never on our own make it back to the safety of the fold. So if you're a believer here this morning, if you're trusting Jesus today and following him, you should be profoundly grateful. For it was Jesus seeking you, not you seeking Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, God gave you the ability to believe when you were born again and given a new heart. At that moment, he opened your eyes to see his truth and his beauty and his worth. What God is telling us in Luke chapter 15, through these lost and found parables, is that he is passionate 
about saving the lost. Are we? Are we passionate about saving our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, family members who are not saved? I still remember um, a Seinfeld episode. I can say Seinfeld here and people will get it, right? I mean, the older I get as a professor, I'll say certain things and the students will go, huh? So Seinfeld, right, the last season of that show, 1998, there was an episode, and some of you may remember this, when Elaine starts to wonder whether her, her jerky boyfriend, Putty, has become a Christian. And so the way she, she starts to get suspicious is that all of the presets on Putty's car radio have been changed to Christian stations. So as the, uh, as the episode progresses, we find out, yes, indeed, Putty is a professing, professing Christian. The worst guy to have represent Christians on the show. But he also realizes there's certain things that he can't do anymore, that he's a Christian, one of them being he can't steal his neighbor's newspaper. So he asks Elaine to do it. <laughs> because she knows where she's going, you know. So Elaine gets fed up with, with Putty constantly making references to her eternal destination. And she confronts him one day and she says, Putty, she says, I'm going to hell. And he says, yeah, it's going to be rough. <laughs> and she said, you should be trying to save me. I'll tell you, that, that response from Elaine has haunted me ever since I saw it. You know, Seinfeld was a funny show, but it brought up a very serious question. If you love me, why aren't you trying to save me? If you love me, why aren't you trying to save me? And I, I started to imagine myself in various scenarios with, with neighbors and coworkers and friends and whatever, and I, and I thought about this terrifying confrontation that fortunately, by God's grace, has never happened, but it would be something like this. Matt Cabot, you're a colleague of mine. You've been my colleague for several years. I know you're a Christian. You've never tried to save me. So either you don't believe in hell, or you don't care that I'm going there. Which is it? How would I answer that question? I mean, I didn't want to offend you. Um, I was concerned you wouldn't like me. I didn't want to look stupid. Well, imagine how, how lame those excuses are, and to get a sense of this. Um, let's, let's imagine this scenario, and this is when Pastor Steve is used. You're at the beach, and you see a blind man walking toward a cliff, and instead of warning that person, you just let the person walk off the cliff. A minute later, someone comes up to you and says, have you seen a guy wandering around? Uh, He's my father, and he's blind. And you reply, oh yeah, I, I think he just walked off that cliff. It's like, what? You watched him walk off the cliff, and you didn't try to warn him? Why not? Well, I didn't want to offend him, you know. Didn't want to look stupid. I, I thought that he wouldn't like me. I think the difference between the two scenarios is that Maybe that the danger to the blind man seems more real to us 
than the danger to our unsaved co-workers. But if that's the case, we have somehow minimized the reality of hell. Right? Jesus himself said in, in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I think he talks more about hell than even heaven. So if, if I am to be faithful to Jesus, and if I believe that the Bible is true, then I must believe in the reality of hell for those who are not in Jesus. So when I look at my, my own lack of personal evangelism, I, I have to believe that in some way I've softened that reality. Because the alternative that I simply don't care is too unbearable to, to imagine. I'm almost sure that if I saw a blind man headed toward a cliff, I would do everything in my power to stop him. And yet I don't have that sense of urgency in my evangelism. And I suspect I'm not alone. So here's what I concluded. When the danger of hell for a non-believer becomes as real to us as the danger of a cliff for a blind man. See it again. When the danger of hell for a non-believer becomes as real to us as the danger of a cliff for a blind man, our evangelistic efforts will be ignited. And we'll start to reach out to people and share the gospel in bold and powerful ways. That's what we're trying to do here at Mercy Hill Church. Under the leadership of Pastor Steve and the elders, we're trying to reshape our church to position us to most effectively reach the lost. We're trying to to create home groups who are on mission to save the lost in their neighborhoods. And we want to make disciples who make disciples, thereby fulfilling the Great Commission. As Pastor Steve said, we need to see ourselves as a search and rescue team on mission to save the lost. So how do we do that? John Piper says we need to tell people the good news of Christ from a heart of love and a life of service. You tell people the good news of Christ from a heart of love and a life of service. In other words, we need gospel declaration and gospel demonstration. We need to tell people the good news that Jesus lived a sinless life, died for our sins, paid the penalty for our transgressions, purchased eternal life, secured all the promises of God, rose from the dead, conquered death and hell and Satan, and now reigns at God's right hand to intercede for us. And he's coming back to make all things right. This is the greatest news ever for a world that is running out of solutions. Disease, poverty, terrorism, wars, economic and environmental disasters, the coarsening of culture and entertainment, the disintegration of families and communities, all these point to the need for a Savior. There's plenty of good advice out there, but there's very little good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. And when we share this good news, the Holy Spirit works in the heart of those sheep who are part of God's flock. They will hear the good shepherd's voice, turn and be saved. In addition to gospel declaration, we need gospel demonstration. I love the way that one of our Acts 29 colleagues puts it. We need to live lives that demand a gospel explanation. Well, how do we do that? Well, we love the unlovable. How can you do that? Someone says. Because of Jesus. 
You're kind to an enemy. How is that possible? Because of Jesus. I've never seen a group of people who love each other more than you guys. What's your secret? It's all because of Jesus. So this guy just cut you off there on the, in the freeway and you didn't get angry. Why not? Because of Jesus. You guys gave up your Saturday morning to clean up your neighbor's yard. Why did you do that? Because of Jesus. Our lives need to be extraordinary. Extraordinary. Beyond ordinary. And if they are, people will want to know why. Then we can tell them about Jesus. In conclusion, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There are people all around you every day that are ready to hear the gospel. Will you tell them? And will you join the good shepherd in his mission to rescue his lost sheep? Life here on earth is short. Eternity is long. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And let's do all we can to fill our Father's house. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation. It was all you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are the good shepherd that even today will go before us as we share the good news. I pray that your spirit would just embolden us Make us courageous to share the good news of Christ with all those that we, that we meet. Thank you for this church, Lord. Thank you for everyone who's here. And I pray your blessing on all of us as we go forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.